Um, as moderns, when we think about the soul, uh, we think of it like uh, this, this place of tranquility. If you Google you know, images of the soul, pic- pictures come up like this tranquil lake, or there's like a little ripple in the water, or there's you know, sort of energy fields emitting from the, the, uh, from the, the person, from the body. This is kind of endless imagery of tranquility. Um, when you look at the scripture, the soul is not described as, as tranquil at all. It's described like stormy. There's constant waves going on. Waves of sadness or of anger or disappointment. Hurt, pain, disillusionment, jealousy, fear. Just constant waves. Uh, and prayer is this gift that God gives us to calm the storm in the soul. Prayer is a gift that we've been given by God to bring rest into the day-to-day restlessness. And over the course of Lent, uh, leading up to Easter, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer and considering prayer, the gift of prayer. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the last line in the Lord's Prayer and and focusing in on that. We get the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and... uh, Uh, verses 9 to 13 it starts out by saying our father who is in heaven this beautiful reminder that united to christ we don't have a a judge who will condemn us we have a loving father who's inclined towards us and we say hallowed be your name praise be to your name and we come to god with this great praise uh, not because he needs it uh, but because we desperately do He's God regardless, but we need to praise him in order to be fully human. And we pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And this removes us from all of our failing attempts to be God. And it reorients us to rest in the greatness of God. Pulls us out of the anxiety of what we think should happen. So that we can actually find rest in the soul regardless of what happens. And we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We're invited to ask God for our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to ask for our needs daily because we're dependent and to ask humbly because God is wise and confidently because we know uh, that we are loved. And then last week we looked at how the, the, the prayer moves on to give us the pattern of ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And this is a picture of remembering our pardon. So that the power to forgive others in our life flows from our marvel at our own pardon. The heart that is gripped by grace, thereby by the Spirit of Christ, we're able to extend grace. And so today we focus on the last line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this, the gospel assures us you know, that the same grace that saved us, it does reorient us and it does deliver us from the evil that's inside us. And the gospel also reminds us that we've ultimately been delivered from the evil one who's outside us. That the the resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us that our death will also end in resurrection. That as he was raised, we will be raised. And the gospel encourages us in this. And so we can pray, lead us, oh God, deliver us from evil. And evil might sound like a strong word. As, As moderns, we're like, that's a bit strong. The evil that's inside me, that's a bit dark. I don't think I'm that dark. Um, but you know with the scriptures what they teach is that to the degree that we are oriented away from ourselves in love um, that is to be godlike and to be curved in on ourselves and sort of a me first 
orientation that self-serving, misplaced self-love uh, is evil. It is the opposite of our God and the image in which we've been, we've been created. And, you know, uh, this, is, and this, is a, um, this is offensive to our modern views because we kind of see, our, in the same way that we have views of the soul as being tranquil, our view of humanity is that, well, deep down we're, we're good people. Or as what the scripture teaches is that deep down we don't find a tranquil lake where we're good people. We look deep down and we realize actually we're, we're sinful people. Um, and that is uh, our default position. And it's difficult to hear, it's difficult to understand, but just imagine this. How many of you have seen uh, a little toddler slap their parent in the face? How many of you have experienced a little toddler slapping their parent in the face? Right? We, all of us, anyone who's had a toddler... Has, had, has been slapped in the face. And for those of you who are single and were toddlers, you slapped your parents in the face. At some point, we've all done it. And here's the question. Who taught them to do that? And we're never trained. We never sat them down and said, you know, listen, if there's ever a moment when you can't express your words because you're not, you haven't been formed enough to be able to articulate your thoughts before you're able to be verbal, verbally communicate, just let us know that nobody's the boss of you by slapping us in the face. No child has ever been taught this. Because you're not the boss of me is the default human orientation. It is our position. No child needs to be taught how to put themselves first, put themselves before others. But every child has to be tirelessly taught um, to be uh, generous and to consider the well-being of others. And so when we pray, deliver us from evil... We're confessing that we are helpless to deliver ourselves from evil. We're, it's a confession that inside our own hearts um, is, it's causing us to, is causing us to sin. And not only are we helpless to deliver ourselves from our own selfishness, in the same way that you can't pull yourself out of quicksand by your own hair, we're also powerless to deliver ourselves from the evil one who is outside us uh, and the inevitability that, that uh, his darkness brings in death. And so we pray, oh God, would you keep us from temptation, and would you deliver us from temptation when we are? So to expound on this further, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 15 verses, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to Corinth, and he's basically encouraging the church to say, don't give in to the temptation around you, um, don't worship the gods of the culture around you, and it's just as relevant today as it was the day it was penned. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in... Uh, uh, verses, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, my brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did. And they were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of all the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that what's common to all mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, and we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. This is God's word. So as I break down this passage for the next couple minutes, as we think about this deliverance from evil, uh, we see that God's law diagnoses our problem. God's grace delivers us from it. Uh, we see that God's law, the wisdom of God's law, the wisdom of the scriptures, exposes how our hearts are lured. And we see how God's grace renews our hearts so that we have a growing distaste for the lure. And so firstly, let's look at how God's law exposes um, how our hearts are lured. In verse 2, it says that we're baptized into Moses. And it's a, it's a callback to the Old Testament as he goes through a number of examples there on how the children of Israel, their restless hearts, they wandered. They wandered the wilderness. It was like a physical outworkings of the wandering in their own souls. This constant wandering that we, that we see. They were wandering into idolatry all the time, the neighboring nations. And uh, you've got some gory examples as you read through the Old Testament. It's this spiraling down into darkness. There seems to be this constant chaos, this constant violence. And you read the Old Testament, you say, this is a hard read. It's supposed to be a hard read because it's a picture, just as Paul was saying to the Corinthian church, and I'm saying to this church, it's a picture of what, what occurs when the heart goes wayward and we, and we orient our lives around and worship other things. That the chaos of the soul ensues and that that chaos inside the restlessness of our own hearts plays out in all manner of selfishness with our families, with our loved ones, with others in this very room and ultimately in the, in the, uh, in the community. And so Paul goes to this example. It's interesting that he goes to the Old Testament when he's talking about the Corinthian church. He doesn't just bypass all of the history and go, hey, I heard there's some problems in Corinth. I just want to speak to these things. He goes back to the, the waywardness of their hearts uh, in the wilderness and, he, and essentially encouraging them and us, by extension, to see that if we don't center on the goodness of God's grace, if we don't marvel at God's grace, we're never going to internalize his commands. You have to remember, the Exodus story was not that God gave them the Ten Commandments and said, keep these and then I'll bring salvation. He gave them salvation free and clear. They were saved by grace. And then they were given the wisdom of his law to guide uh, their lives and for them uh, to flourish. And so he goes to uh, chapter 4 to highlight this, the, the power of saving grace, the power of grace in your life, the power of being united to Christ and having his indwelling spirit. He goes to this in verse 4 by interpreting the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And he says, you know, Christ was the rock. When you read the Old Testament, you don't find there was this epiphany of, a, of a, an angelic figure there oh, dispensing water in the wilderness. That's not what you get. It's just a physical rock. This underground river that God, you know, miraculously uh, calls Moses to speak to this rock and water comes out of it. And later uh, he asks him to speak to it again. And Moses disobeys and he hits the rock because he's frustrated with all these grumbling, grumbling people of God. And he just gets frustrated and he hits the rock and the water comes forward. That's the rock that Paul's looking back on the Old Testament going, actually, that's Jesus. And what is he saying? He's saying you can look through the entire Old Testament and see that, that all of forms of salvation are ultimately culminating in Christ. And as he points back to that, he's trying to get Corinth to marvel at God's track record of salvation because it's only in, until you marvel at God's grace that you have a desire to walk out the implications of his law. 
Paul gets to instructions, which we'll get to in a minute. Those are what we call the imperatives of Scripture, telling us what to do. But before he gets to the imperatives, he goes back to the indicatives of Scripture. And an indicative means what is true. And he goes back and he goes, look at what God has done. This scandalous love, this amazing grace, this unfathomable forgiveness and patience. The Israel's going off, they're worshiping other gods. They're doing unspeakable things to women and children. It's a disaster. It's a total disaster. What they deserve is to be left to die. But what God does is he continually keeps saving his children by undeserved scandalous grace. And the reason why Paul goes back there to point to Christ being the rock, the one that saved them in the wilderness as, uh, with the water, is precisely because that church in Corinth can't simply say, you know, okay, sure, we got some problems in our church here in Redeemer. Okay, sure, we got some problems in our, in our church, in our hearts, with our selfishness. Sure, we got some problems, but just give me some good biblical instruction and I'll go do it. No, you won't. They had the law. It was written with the finger of God. They saw things you're never going to see. They experienced things you're never going to experience. And you think if I give you some 2021 Kitchener-Waterloo book of Leviticus, and I become the religious thought police and kind of walk you through all the nuances, you know, sort of like how to, how to live in Kitchener-Waterloo according to, you know, Paul Donk, you think if I like was to sort of, I mean, I'm not even capable, I'm not that smart, but even if I were... You think if I was to sort of walk that out and just kind of tease it all out, you would say, there, that's all I needed. Thank you for the instruction. Oh, my goodness. Paul goes back to salvation. And he goes, if you are not moved by this, then you might be like the children of Israel going through the religious motions, but it is not going to last. It is not going to stick. It is going to get old. You're going to teach your children, basically, the reason that you obey God is so that at the end everything works out. You're going to omit the Christ of the Christian ethics. You're going to focus on the ethics. And then like in the book of Joshua, when it says a generation rose up that did not know the ways of the Lord, we'll do the same thing. Paul's like, yo, Corinth. He doesn't just dive into the imperatives of like, here's the following six things you should change, even though the text ultimately goes there in some ways. He goes back to sell. He's like, you got to be blown away by this. Because Christ was the fulfillment of all of, all of these things. He's, what he's doing is he's making use of the same thing John did in his gospel. Where he's saying that the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is leading a new exodus. And we are a part of that new exodus as the people of God. And so this ought to cause for us to be, you know, marvel so that we, have, so that we are motivated. So that we're not merely applying behavior management onto unchanged hearts. Because behavior management on unchanged hearts, that's rearranging the deck chairs on the you know, theological Titanic. That thing is going down. And so Paul's like, we've got to go back to the goodness of Jesus. Um, in verse 5, you get this picture of the, the scatteredness in, in the wilderness. And, and you consider what, what they did. And they basically, they were saying, we'll decide what to worship. We'll decide how to worship. We'll decide what fulfills us. And that's what was going on in Corinth. And that's what's going on today. So there's really nothing original about it. Sin is actually quite unoriginal when we break it all down. And so Paul sorts of pull, pulls them back to this. And he's like, you might not be denying Christ, but you sure are dethroning him. And so you and I can dial back out, think about this prayer that we're called to pray, not just weekly, corporately, but daily in your own lives, in your homes. Oh God, deliver me from evil. Now, when I'm praying that, um, can I do some inventory and some self-examination on what are the ways in which I decide what I orient my life around? You know, how has it been possible that in this last year um, of COVID that I've, I've found uh, ways that it's been quite convenient, great excuses to not love, love my neighbor? Because after all, 
you know, we don't want to uh, give them the coronavirus. So I can just live this isolated life in this little universe of comfort inside my walls. Has that been convenient? Possibly. Or what about the other thing? I'm not going to bow to Caesar. Man, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to do my thing. I don't care who or what. No one can tell me what to... And we can swing into the other end of that you just exalt yourself above everybody else in the room. It's been, how, how, has that been convenient, a temptation? Oh God, deliver us from evil. Oh God, deliver us from both ditches. Oh God, deliver us. This last year has been a trying time for all churches, globally, the church, our church here in Redeemer. Every believer, challenging. How has it, how has it shown us how has the last year shown us? Oh man, what a day it's been. Oh man, what a week it's been. You know what? I am cooked. I am beat. I am, my soul is out of sorts. The waves are crashing. I need some reprieve. I know where I'll go. Whatever your answer is to that thing, that's your king, your functional king, your functional savior. I'm not saying you deny Jesus. I'm saying that you and I both, many times over this year, we've dethroned him though. Ah, here's my, here is my reprieve as I just kneel before my, my mini Messiah to get this reprieve that my soul needs. What has that been for you? Or do we come to confession every Sunday and the, whoever, which one of the elders is up to lead to confession and you think to yourself, I can't even think of anything to confess. You know, I've had those weeks too. I'm not preaching down to you. I know I'm weirdly high, but um, I should be on the ground. With, I'm with you, church. I do this. And, and, and the weeks that I'm like, oh, hmm, let me think of something. Well, I'm either delusional or I have a really, you know, high view of my own righteousness and a really low view of what God expects. Or I've cozied up with my sin. I'm so comfortable with it that the fact that I got to, hmm, what would I confess this week? Deliver me from evil. I don't think I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I can think, you know, I can think I have, you know, when you lower the bar, there's people that have done this. I haven't done that. I'm a pretty good guy. How have we done these things? Where have we turned? How have we gone? So the Apostle Paul does not want them applying behavior management to what's going on in Corinth. And he's like, whoa, listen, let's not grumble like they grumbled. There's this like massive warning there. Let's not you know, just sort of go through religious motions. Let's not do any of that stuff. Because if we do that, if we're not blown away by the deliverance of God, and you know, you and I have moments when we're absolutely not blown away by it, and that's why Sunday mornings is a reorientation for worship. Um, you know, but if ultimately we're not, then like the children of Israel, we won't really be loving God, we'll be leveraging God. The reason they died in the wilderness was not because they loved God. Was not because they, loved God. they died in the wilderness because they did not love God. They did not worship God. God isn't in the business of just being a cosmic ogre and allowing his beloved children to die. He does not do that. They died in the wilderness because they didn't love God. They were leveraging God. And then when their life wasn't going the way that they thought it should go, despite all the miraculous miracles that they saw, they grumbled against God. Corinth was being warned, hey, look, don't do the same thing, guys. Don't leverage God. So that the moment your life is not the way you want it, all bets are off. And KW Redeemer, may we not leverage God, but may we love him and worship him. And when we get to um, verses 7 and 8, we see where this flows from this, this strict warning to, he speaks to Corinth being an overly sexualized culture. 
And we are as well today. In fact, the parallels are really striking between ancient Corinth and modern-day Kitchener-Waterloo because a lot of our views on sexuality that we think are progressive are actually super old. Um, the, the, the text says, uh, if you read back in the Exodus, it says, they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And then here in the Greek, the original Greek, uh, your English translations may say various things. They rose up to do debauchery or sexual immorality. But, um, but, but in the Greek... Uses the exact word "rose up to play" because in the in the Hebrew culture, the "rose up to play" was a wink, wink way of saying you were super promiscuous, super promiscuous in wild ways, doing wild sexual things that probably your neighbors in Kitchener Waterloo either number one are not doing, or number two, if they are doing it, it's a secret. But in those cultures, it was like, hey, what are you doing Thursday night? You understand? Ancient Corinth, wide open sexually. And so what happens is Paul speaks to this and he's like, listen, they rose up to play in wild ways. Guys, you ought not to rise up to play. And why would he, why would he talk that way? And why would he go there? I like that phrase, that Hebrew, and and, and then he repeats it in the Greek, the phrase rose up to play, because if there is no God that didn't design us for any reason, then why not your body just be a playground? And the purpose of sex and the purpose of sexuality is to just play. I was listening to a, uh, a couple of weeks, I was listening to a, a, a podcast with an interview by a man named uh, Ed Shaw, who wrote uh, a book on sexuality and the church and very insightful. Uh, I haven't read the book yet, but I was listening to him and he used this language of uh, the body being a playground. And immediately I thought, yeah, that's perfect because this is, this is what the text gives us. They just rose up to play. I mean, if you abandon God, then why not just have your body be a playground? Basically, the only ethic you need is consent. So as long as there's consent, that's really the only parameter that's necessary. And everything else is sort of free game. And so why, why would Paul talk this way and do, do this and go here? Well, because what he's getting at is there is a purpose for your body. And it's not a, a playground. It's a temple. And in fact, if it's true that there is a God that created you with beauty and dignity, then your sexuality is part of who you are, but it certainly is not the totality of who you are. In fact, your sexuality is a small part of who you are. It can't be what defines you as a person in your identity. It can't be. And the reason is because if it does define who you are and it does define your identity and your fulfillment, then what that means is single people are somehow incomplete. If you are not a person who is either, I don't just mean committed in marriage, but if you're not in a relationship, if you're not hooking up, if you're not active sexually, then what the Corinthian culture was basically telling you was like, there's massive lack in your life. You've got to rise up and play. And that's the same kind of conversation today around sexuality. And so what Paul is doing is he's provoking something. The purpose is not... The purpose of sexuality, broadly speaking, according to the Christian worldview, is not pleasure, although of course it's pleasurable. It's this promise of future love because it's housed in this covenant of marriage between a man and a wife where what God is doing there is he's saying, I'm going to make this very specific thing called the sexual act live within a promise of future love. Not who you are today, not, how, not the warm fuzzies I feel for you today, but In the same way that I loved the children of Israel because of my covenant love through all of the Old Testament, while they were an utter disaster, I stayed committed to them and committed to my promise. Marriage is a picture of of a future commitment of future love forever. And you are giving yourself 
emotionally and physically and sexually and financially and legally. I mean, wholly to this person. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, Corinth, you've bent your knee to the wrong king. And so because you're seeing your body as a playground and not as a temple, it's wreaking havoc in your soul. Because what that was created for this specific thing. But you've said, no, I'm not convinced that it's created for this specific thing. And so I'm going to you know, give myself broadly. But sexuality, not defining who you are as a person, gives tremendous dignity for you, uh, for all of you, single or, or, or otherwise, single or married. Because for, uh, if you are single, there's a tremendous uh, dignity being given to the fact that uh, you are not complete in the sense that you are somehow fulfilled sexually. It's not like water and air that you need in order to live. When we look at Jesus, let's consider Jesus again. Um, Jesus had these deep, intimate, emotional, intense, loving relationships with men and women. And he wasn't sexually engaged with either But he had these deep, intimate, emotional connections with men. He had these deep and intimate, emotional connections with women. And he loved them dearly. He showed mercy and grace. Jesus is essentially humanity perfected. And Jesus didn't settle down with 2.4 kids and get married. So Jesus didn't say, you know, the picture of humanity fulfilled is to be with another person. Jesus gives just this radical dignity to to the self, to what it is to be human, to be fulfilled within yourself. But the Corinthian Corinthian culture is like, absolutely not. You've got to rise up and play. Our culture is like, absolutely not. You've got to rise up and play. And Paul is saying, don't bend your knee to the wrong king. And so the loving wisdom of the scriptures uh, for both churches um, encourage us in this. So that not only do we live this way, but we raise our children this way. And we teach them to give dignity and respect and love to everybody else in the Kitchener-Waterloo community that disagrees with 100% of what I just said. To treat those folks with dignity and love. To be friends with them. To have intimate and close, loving, kind friendships and, and relationships with people that completely do not share any of these ethics. So Paul is encouraging them not to bend their knee to the wrong king. So I close with this. He moves in the closing of this passage to show how God's grace renews our hearts so that we have this growing distaste for the lure. He says at the end of this text... He says, flee from idolatry. I mean, how do you flee? You don't flee from things you want. This speaks of the work of the Spirit. You don't flee from things you love. You run, you, you run to things that you want. You run to things that you love. So how do you do this? He speaks about this. He moves right to the bread and the cup. He moves right to uh, the goodness of Jesus. In verse 15, he says, listen, you're sensible people. Judge for yourself. And I would say to you, KW Redeemer, and those of you who are online listening, you're sensible people. Judge for yourself. I mean, if there is a God and he came in Jesus Christ and he lived the perfect life that we're not living, he died an atoning death, he rose from the grave, and then he unites himself to you and he gives you his indwelling spirit. And is it, not sensitive, is it not sensible then for us to bend our knee to that king, to live to the glory of that king, to be fulfilled by that king? So how, it is, how is it that we flee from uh, our wayward desires and our wayward hearts? In the same way that when you get off track, the GPS continually says to you, at the next opportunity, please make a U-turn, please make a U-turn, please make a U-turn. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives does his reforming work 
So that progress looks like repentance, actually. If you're going in the wrong direction, the first person to turn around is the, is the most progressive person. And this is, the call, this is the call in this prayer for us to pray, Oh God, would you deliver us from evil? Would you help me to make the U-turn? Would you, by the power of your Spirit, do this work? And I have really good news. Even though we are called you know, to turn from unloving and self-centered temptations, whatever they may be, you know, with our willpower... The, the, the reorientation of our hearts is done by the Spirit's power. Verses 16 and 17, united to Christ, we will increasingly desire the obedience to Christ. He goes to the bread, he goes to the cup. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread participation in the body? What is this participation? The participation is that by faith, death and resurrection, united to Christ, you've been made new. This is the power that the Apostle Paul is calling the church in Corinth and our church by extension to turn to. So that in, in these difficult days, in the months that are facing you, in the, di- in the daily opportunities you have for your soul to get turned over like waves dragging up rocks on the beach, you and I have the opportunity to take this gift of prayer and to go to God and to experience the calming renewal of the Spirit as He calms us and as He reorients us to Him. As God's law exposes how our hearts are lured, God's grace renews our hearts with a growing distaste for the lure. So by God's grace, may he continue to deliver us from the evil in our own hearts that we may enjoy him and glorify him forever. Amen. Let's pray.